Wow, that's loud. How many of you are involved in That Man Is You here? Okay, a few of you. How many of you have been to Chirp? You have Chirp up in our parish as well. It's, our pastor calls it the backbone of our parish. And we started Rekindle the Fire um, out of that because people got on fire. <clears throat> and then what do you do? So we have monthly meetings um, after that. But good. So um, now, why do we have to talk about being a Catholic man or Catholic vision of masculinity at all? How many of you would say there's some confusion in the culture about masculinity? Yeah. And how about in the church? We just came off this summit in Rome about sexual abuse and, and the homosexual problem and predator homosexual bishops wasn't mentioned at all. <clears throat> and all of that comes out of a failure of men to live out their masculinity. So we're going to talk about some of that. We won't get into the sexual abuse side of it, but um, as much. So we're struggling inside the church, and we're struggling outside the church. And um, I'm going to outline... Well, the other problem is that there's been an attack on masculinity. And it's not, it's not a subtle thing. It's not a conspiracy theory. It is a stated goal of philosophical, political people that want to undo the family. And they're doing a pretty blank good job. Um, so I'll outline that. And then um, I will outline my answer to that, which is this Catholic vision of masculinity, which has at the heart of it and the summit of it, spiritual fatherhood. And I'll, we'll unpack that. And then we'll get pretty practical as well. Um, so why did I get interested in this? Um, my, my father was fairly good at doing stuff with me and my brothers. I have a brother who was same-sex attracted. Um, but he, and so he did some good, good things and taught a lot. But he was also perfectionistic and kind of critical, which is, can be very devastating on, on, a, on a person's soul. And um, so that's part of where it comes from. Then uh, I started researching the masculinity literature, and um, in it, is this call, all men are called to fatherhood. So I'm thinking, okay, great. Well, what does that mean for me, who my wife and I weren't able to have children? So it comes out of that wound as well. So um, we have it developed a little bit for, um, what, priests, spiritual fatherhood, and religious. And in the last 20 years, it's been pretty well developed, or it's coming online better and better. So my thought is it needs to be available, lived out for all men. And we'll discuss what spiritual fatherhood is. All right. So at the core of the problem and the confusion, I would say, is fatherlessness. Um, there's a pandemic. This is worse than an epidemic. How many of you, how, what would you guess what percentage 
of kids grow up in homes without their father? What would you guess? 50 percent? 75? 40. 40. 42%. That's still way, way too many. Now, there are places, and we'll find out, that go up to 75 and 80. And, well, 71. We'll see where that, that goes. Um, but, so 42%. If 42% of people had the flu, we'd be freaking out. If 42% of the people had cancer, we'd be freaking out. But we yawn. Oh, yeah, fatherless kids, whatever. Um, and it's, um, it's devastating for the children. There's massive psychological, sociological, and spiritual damage that's being done. And the evidence isn't like hidden and it's, you know, it's, it's irrefutable. So, what are the effects? It increases divorce. It increases out-of-wedlock births and out-of-wedlock children. Kids engage in sex younger when there's, a fa there's no father in the home. School performance goes down. There's an increased risk of suicide and there's an increased risk of suicide completion in fatherless homes. The jails are filled with fatherless men. So criminality goes up. Addictions go up. And then for the homosexual and gender confusion, um, fatherless plays, fatherlessness plays a major role. Okay? Now, I'm not the only one who thinks that there's a problem or a crisis. Anybody recognize this guy? That's Cardinal Ratzinger. This is before he was Pope Benedict XVI. He says, the crisis of fatherhood that we are experiencing today is a basic as aspect of the crisis that threatens mankind as a whole. He does not exaggerate, okay? That's a pretty bold statement. So what's the crisis? When fathers are seen only as a biological accident with no claims on their children, or they're a tyrant to be thrown off. So that's a problem. It's not really a new crisis. Um, the family is the cell of society. That's John Paul II, several other popes. If you destroy the family, then you're destroying civilization. Everything comes down. The church, society, the family, all go. If you destroy fatherhood, you destroy the family. So John Paul II says that it isn't, it isn't a new problem. He says original sin then attempts to abolish fatherhood. Original sin then attempts to abolish fatherhood. So it goes all the way back to the garden. God's turned into a bad father. And then he says, the future of the world and the church passes through the family. Now, I hate to quibble with him, but I would add, the future of the family passes through fatherhood. Fathers provide, good fathers, good husbands provide a context, a place where ch women and children can flourish.
So we're going to shift gears. More good news. Gang violence. It's a problem all over the world. There was a gang of juvenile delinquents, and they went on a killing spree. The twist to the story, these were the victims, white rhinoceroses. And they were on the endangered species list. They racked up 39 kills. The other twist to the story is, these are the perps. These elephants, they formed gangs, and they went on a killing spree. So what happened here was, um, they moved some young, well, they killed it. They, they had to call the, the herd in, a, in another park. So they killed the parents. They transport eight and nine, eight, nine, ten-year-olds to a new place. They get on the reserve. They're a herd animal. Boof! They split. They're, 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 they're mammals, so they have attachment circuits. That means they can feel attached to one another. So when they got there, they split up. They're terrified. They're grieving. So they figured out, okay, well, maybe we need a mom come in. So they brought a mother elephant in, and she corralled them in about two weeks. Things went along fine until you have teenager boys start cranking out hormones. At 13 to 18, they get kicked out of the herd. Well, if they're getting kicked out, um, they're, they're fatherless. So... They went on these killing streets. So their testosterone shoots up. Their cross-species aggression went off the charts, which is unusual. Um, they, they start acting out sexually 10 years earlier. And um, you know, that's pretty much it. So they are fatherless adolescents. So they tried to kill a couple of them. That, that worked for a little while until the other ones turned 13 to 18. And the same thing happened. So then they finally figured out, well, maybe they need, um, maybe they need some help. Maybe they need um, a spiritual father. Well, here's a picture of them turning over the rhinoceros. And then they either step on it, two-ton elephant stepping on you, not fun. Or um, they run their tusks through them. So... After they figured out maybe they're fatherless, they brought in this guy, a four-ton adult male. So you can imagine a know-it-all, testosterone-laden adolescent male is going to take on the four-ton bull, right? I don't know. I wish there was video. But somehow, the little two-ton guy poof, took a three-foot ride in the air, boom, and it was over. His testosterone level dropped in an hour. The dominance hierarchy is established. And he becomes a law-abiding citizen. Okay? Fatherless elephants <coughs> act out in juvenile delinquent ways. Up to murder. So, we have an elephant in the living room. We're creating a culture of fatherless families. And we have problems. And I don't think it's lost on anybody, you know, what's happening in our culture. This was 2015 in Baltimore. So Freddie Gray gets killed in police custody. Boom, riots break out. Um, so the focus of the story was on racism and inequality. The story that wasn't told 
that in Baltimore, there are 84% of 15 to 17 year olds that are from broken homes. And they act out. Okay? Now, just in case we think this is, you know, like way over there, here's, here's some costs of divorce from unwed, divorce and unwed childbearing. This is Indiana. We're 13th out of 50. That sucks, people. <laughs> That's a lot. 10%, actually almost 11% of our taxes go to taking care of unwed mothers and the fallout from divorce. And that includes TANF, food stamps, Medicaid, child welfare, Department of Justice, um, and the foregone um, tax revenue. So the tax revenue that a productive citizen would bring in, and they're not bringing it in. Now, why is this so? Well, it could be because Indiana, Indianapolis, right south of here, is number nine out of 45 of the largest cities for the most broken homes. They're tied for number nine. You know what the percentage is? 71%. That's not good. That's a fatherless city. So aggression is one problem we have with males who are fatherless. There's another one. That's passivity. Kids on their games. And then this is an advertisement, Pajama Boy. Um, he is, he's wondering about Obamacare. So he wears pajamas, drink hot chocolate, talk about getting health insurance. That's an inspiring masculine role model, right? I don't think so. Um, so every society and family has two tasks that they need to help young men with. And that's to get control of their sexuality and their aggression. If you don't, then you get anarchy. Anarchy is not good for society. It turns into dog eat dog. It turns into a bully fest. Who's stronger than who? So there are two distortions of masculinity I'm going to suggest. One is on the brutality side, <clears throat> and that is Cain. Cain killed his brother who? Abel. So murderous aggression right from the beginning. And then on the other side is passivity. And passivity I attribute to Adam. So here's the, the snake in the garden, the serpent. We don't know if he was threatening or if he was a nice little seductive one. There's interpretations. But he was passive in the face of a threat. He did not lay down his life for his bride. So Jesus has got to do cleanup. He's laying his life down for his bride. So that's passivity. Now, this all comes out of um, a very distinct fight. And the fight is over the nature of reality. I did, I did a talk on same-sex attraction and same-sex marriage, and, and I said it's not about sex. It's about the view of reality. This is what's at stake, not sex. So there's two ways to look at it. Either you discover reality, which is, includes natural law, which is Catholics are mostly familiar. I don't know about the laity, but at least in the, in the, you know, in the intellectual realm. 
And reason becomes primary on this side. So you either discover reality, their things have an inbuilt purpose. So when you take elephants out of their context and don't give them fathers, blank happens, right? So the other side is make it up, make up reality. Things are nothing until we make them up according to our desire and will. So the primacy here is will. I get to dictate what reality is. That is, that is if you get this piece of it, this, this will clear up a lot of confusion for you on the political landscape. And, and not, that, you know, you know, not that Republicans are doing great with this either, but certainly on the liberal side, there's a, there's a philosophy that's getting implemented. So one author, another Hoosier, he's up in South Bend, E. Michael Jones, he has this book on degenerate moderns. It's subtitled, Modernity as Rationalized Sexual Misbehavior. Okay, modernity as rationalized sexual misbehavior. Think, what is, what is, what are, what's on the docket? What do we just lose? Same-sex marriage? So gays want to get married. Same-sex attracted want to get married. We've got divorce, we've got sex outside of marriage. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself here. So there are a series of divorces. The culture wants to tear these things apart. And the church says no. They belong together. And that's our message, and we are not getting it out there very well. So there are things that are discovered. Now, I've got handouts up here, and this is, this is part of it. So if you're writing furiously, you can take it home. Um, but there are things that are discovered together. That's the Catholic view, that are now divorced. So body and soul. I'm not going to go through this intensely, but body and soul. So you go with body alone, you can have all the pleasure you want. Um, contraception, babies from bonding. If, if you don't have, if you have contraception, you can have sex at your convenience alone. Um, another one with contraception is you split sex from marriage. So you can have sex outside of marriage, you can, and it's free of getting pregnant. Um, so same sex, you can have sex with anything, and it's coming. Um, then, then there is the literal divorce between husband and wife, easy divorce. So that becomes my choice alone, disposable marriages. Now, if you think about men, and if they're pursuing pleasure, we've got problems. So it, it continues. The marriage is separated from the good of children. Marriage is not about love, it's about the good of children. It legally binds you to your children. It's very helpful for society. Even high promiscuous sexual societies like Rome and Babylon knew this. They had laws governing it. So then you've got marriage divorce from one man, one woman. Now, part of this, well, then I'll go on. Freedom is separated from limits and responsibility. So uh, you're free from things. So I should be able to sit down at a piano, which, you know, I, I can play a few chords, but, you know, I am not going to play Bach, okay? Or I'm not going to have any listeners 
well, I'm trying to play it because it's going to be awful. But I'm free from learning that. I'm free from the law. I don't need to learn that stuff. I should just be able to play it. So that's, that's freedom from limits. That's, I live in a, in a railroad town and taught kids for 15 years the confirmation. They, I would say, look, when's a f train most free to be a train? When it's coming down Main Street? No. It's when it's on its tracks. So freedom is always and only found in limits. Then gender is being divorced from biology. I get to choose. Today, I am a woman. No, tomorrow, I'm a man. No, today, I'm a woman. Um, it becomes what? Well, I won't, I won't do any commentary. Anyway, it becomes my choice alone. Okay? So here's the stated goal of Marxism from 1848, the Communist Manifesto. He says, abolition of the family. He wants to get rid of the family. So why is that? Well, he wants to make the state the father. And to get rid of the family, you've got to attack the father. So what happens um, in gay, so-called gay marriage? I, I think it's only a socialist end, and that's for the destruction of the family. You know, we had easy, we had contraception, easy divorce, um, and that kind of rattled marriage pretty good, but it didn't destroy it. But once you get to um, gay marriage, you've got you know, if they're going to have children, what are you going to do with birth certificates? Mother and father? Mm -mm. California already has parent one slash mother, parent two slash father. So they're going to do away with mother and father, and they're recreating the family. So this is, this is a little bit like, um, well, what is this? It's a triangle. What kind of triangle? Equilateral, all the sides are the same. So, so gay marriage is like saying, okay, it's still a triangle, but what have I got now? Sticks, right? So you redefine, they're redefining reality with this. Does that make sense? All right, so um, just a little more good news. Um, this is toxic feminism. They are looking for the elimination of sex distinction, and that includes genital differences. That's the goal of the feminist revolution. Now, this gal, Miss Firestone, she was a very, very sick individual, schizophrenic to the end of her life. And you have to think about how much hatred there is for her own body to go here. She's at conflict with herself. Then she sees the heart of women's oppression is her childbearing and childrearing roles. Okay, let's take out women. And the tyranny then of the biological family would be broken. Okay, so can you see how this is not just a you know, happenstance thing? This is, this is progressive. Um, implementation of this philosophy, starting with Marx, runs through feminism. And then we get to this, the gender revolution. I won't talk about this. 
And, and while we're at it, they want to kill the heroes too. So if you think about what wins an Academy Award, you have to have a, a, a character that is, uh, you know, the, the main character has to be either so conflicted or you don't know whether to cheer for them or, you know, to boo for them. So somebody named George Roche argues that scientism, scientism is that belief where you can only know reality through science, empirical evidence. So that's scientism. Scientism attacks all meaning and purpose without and without meaning. Heroism is relegated to the few. Okay, so they say, okay, heroes are, are just not a part of the big picture. So heroism is closed to the many. Real heroism requires courage, and it entails peril or pain. It has a selfless quality in service or sacrifice to others. But with meaning and purpose attacked by the materialist, courage is ridiculed. Okay, attack on men. Um, heroes are, are laughed at. So I want you to take out the card, the Abba Prayer for Men. And we're going to read just sections of this. So we're going to read the first paragraph together. Abba, make me know, together, Abba, make me know my true identity as your beloved son, so profoundly that I live out my spiritual and physical husbandhood and fatherhood in active service to others. Help me become who I am by always remembering who I am in you. Okay. So we're just going to pause there. Now, I want you to turn to a neighbor and just take a minute and say one thing that stood out for you, one thing that jumped out at you. Okay? And you can go now. Okay, if you haven't switched, let the other person talk.
Okay. So, anybody like to share just one or two thoughts? And this is. Yeah. What stood out for you? Good, good. Yeah, our whole faith is about remembering. I won't go into it. But I could. Anybody else? Yeah. Yes. Good. Thank you. Yes. I, that dawned on me. I heard people talking about divorces, and I'm like, oh, that's all over the place. And then the church is saying, look, no, bring it back together. I mean, this is what I used for the same-sex attraction. You know, look, we don't want your sexuality to be separated from your personhood. If you say I'm gay, that's a political term, and you're making one part of you the whole. That's what every heresy does. Jesus is God. He's not man. Oops. Nope. Jesus is man. He's not God. So we take one piece and we make it the whole. So those divorces are really clear. And, and I don't know. I'm gonna, I'm a, I got a couple of people I want to run it by that are kind of agnostic. I want to see what they say and on the liberal end of the spectrum. I, I, I'd love to hear the responses. So, all right. Thank you. Good comments. So fatherlessness is the problem. What do we do? I'm going to suggest that we need a Catholic vision of masculinity to address this. And, and it needs to be able to clear up confusions. It needs to discover reality, not make it up. It needs to stop divorcing those things. It needs to address the two tasks, which were what? Families and societies had to address Sexuality and aggression. And then the two distortions. What were those? Brutality. Passivity. Okay, That's, that's the big framework we're going to hang all of this stuff on. Then, um, and then the other thing, I think we need to restore heroism. So that we need to do all those things to save our civilization. And it's late, folks. It's late. So, but I believe we can discover the answers by drawing on church teaching and Catholic tradition and psychology. So, and we're going to have some fun too. So, heroism starts early. Okay? You think about this. I think there's, I, I don't remember the mileage on this one, but it's uh, after a trek up the fallopian tube, which is like the equivalent of some 40 miles or something, that's what I'm not clear on, of a salmon going upstream, okay, a 40-mile trek, and then you've got a few competitors. Mm, you know, I mean, 200 million, it's, it actually it goes from, I don't know, the numbers are all over, 40 million to 1.2 billion competitors. And only one guy gets the prize, generally, right? She got twins. So it's, um, I think a lot of differences between men and women start right here. So women, if you wonder why 
your man is competitive, now you know. And if you, if you want to know why your boys won't sit still, now you know. Okay? So, so I want to suggest that we need to develop this ordinary heroes. This will be the title of my book whenever I write it. I can't write the stupid book, but I, I got the prayer, and it's a pretty good prayer. Somebody said it was great, so I like that. Um, so, and it needs to be spiritual fatherhood is the heart of this Catholic vision of masculinity. So point one is heroism is open to all. And heroes make a difference in people's lives. Now, it could be grandiose. I mean, this is my grandiosity here, right? You know, here's the plan. We're going to save civilization. It's good. I, I like it. Um, I think you'll, you'll find it helpful. Um, but I better be doing this at home. I better be sacrificing at home, too. If I'm not, um, you know, I'm not living out my masculinity. So maybe it's working in a soup kitchen. Maybe it's just working a job to put food on the table. Um, maybe it's changing a diaper. I saw this guy on YouTube, I think the wife set him up, put a camera on the baby changing station. The guy could not stand the smell of his girl's diaper. So he's going, ah, and then he's literally retching. So, <laughs> so that was heroic fatherhood, okay? That was heroism right there. Not, not exactly your, you know, chivalrous kind of, but anyway, it's in these little things. Just being a good dad or grandfather. And then reaching out to the neighbor kids, 42%. So that's, you know, every four out of 10 kids in your neighborhood are fatherless. You can start picking up kids. That sounded bad. You need to help kids. <laughs> so you need some sacrifice for others. A, live, a life lived for others. That's ordinary heroism. And that's spiritual fatherhood. Okay? Um, so as I get older, life gets simpler in some ways. And the faith, I, I like to get things down to a prime. This is the prime of our faith. You are loved insanely, extremely. And then you're challenged. Okay? I was talking about my dad. This is what my dad reversed. He challenged more than he loved. And it leaves you empty and with wounds. But we're loved first, then challenged. Now, the challenge is, you know, like, pick up your cross every day, right? Die daily. My favorite. Love your enemies. Even if that's your spouse. Right? So, love and challenge. So, what I've come up with is four components of a Catholic vision of masculinity. We're going to breeze through a lot of this. Um, so on being family is the first part. Then spiritual fatherhood. Then the integrated or wise man. That's going to include your head, your heart, and your hands. And then the fundamentals, which we will not touch on today. So on being family. When you are born into a family, you have a mother and father. Even if you're adopted, you have a physical mother and father. Um, but when you get baptized... You get a new mother and father. In fact, you, we, could, we could out, I say this kind of tongue-in-cheek, we could outdo the two-mommy crowd here with, we get Mary, and who's our other mother? Church. And you get 
You get two dads if you want them. The father, and who else? Church? No. St. Joseph. So, that's, so you're a son. You're a brother. You might not have physical, biological siblings, but you know, once you get baptized, you have 1.2 billion brothers and sisters. That's a few. And then we're also husbands. And this is where we really drop the ball um, at First Communion. We do a great job with the girls. They dress up as what? Brides. Are we talking to the guys saying, look, you now are a spouse. You're the husband of who? The church. And you need to take care of her. If we got that thinking started there, I don't think you'd have all this gender confusion. And then we don't get married in the Catholic Church to not have kids. So fatherhood is the summit. And you have to go on the spiritual side too. How many of you have kids? Okay, great. You guys are doing double duty. You have to be fathers not only to your biological children, but you have to be spiritual fathers to them and others. So that's on being family. So let's pick up the prayer. It's the second paragraph, it's the third paragraph. I will then take up the challenge of your demanding love and following St. Joseph, I will live out the summit of my manhood as spiritual father, exercising the virtue of chivalry as priest, prophet, and king to fulfill the prophecy that God will turn to men toward the children. Okay? So now we're going to go into spiritual fatherhood. So it's, it's lived out in chivalry as priest, prophet, and king. But let's talk about what it is first. So I already told you we don't have kids, so it got personal for me. Um, then um, it's, let's see. Okay, so when we think about spiritual fatherhood, in the Old Testament, repeatedly Israel's told to take care of who? Widows? Orphans. That's spiritual fatherhood. Um, the New Testament, well, James says that too. The New Testament, Jesus expands that, and he's, Jesus says, when you do it unto the least of these, you do it unto me. So that means all the vulnerable, whatever form. So there's plenty of candidates for spiritual children. Um, then when, um, you know, I think you can include love your neighbor in this, and then... Um, the Great Commission, go and make what? Disciples of all nations. That's, that's, a, that's a, a variation on be fruitful and multiply. Have spiritual children. So that's the spiritual Christian Catholic side of it, okay? Now, I don't want you to get stuck there because there's a lot more to do than, than, you know, I mean, how many of you have literally walk somebody into the church. Great, there's a few of you. Not all of us, though, so that doesn't leave us out. 
Well, you could, you could, if they're in the church, yeah, sure. So the easiest way to talk about what spiritual fatherhoods, what you're supposed to do, is the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. Okay, if you don't know these, get a copy. The spiritual and corporal works of mercy. That's how you live out spiritual fatherhood. Then, um, so two stories here. We were part of a small parish that had a school. And in, we, I'd go to daily mass sometimes, and the kids would file in on Fridays for all school mass. And what would happen is the little second and third graders would be shepherded by the fifth and sixth graders. And they're, you know, like, shut up, you know, face forward. And, you know, some of them are very tender and very caring. That was spiritual fatherhood being lived out. Okay? Then I had an, a friend who's retired, but then he went back in, into the school system, God bless him, you know, secular school, and he taught shop. And he would watch for those kids that were out on the outskirts, on the margins, those, those kids that don't fit in. And they'd end up in shop class anyway, right? Because, I don't know, that's what they do, right? And so, so then he would build a relationship with them. And he'd watch these kids bloom. That's spiritual fatherhood. All right, so we've got spiritual fatherhood as chivalry. Um, so what the heck is chivalry? C.S. Lewis, how many of you have heard of him? Yeah, good. He, this is stolen from him. He says that chivalry has three components. Well, and it's not a code for knights, and it's not romantic behavior. It's a virtue. So it's the virtue of chivalry we're going to address here. And what, we're, what we want to do is see if we can address the two tasks of society. One is get control of your sexuality. The other is your aggression. So the first part of this is meekness. Now, meekness is what? It's a castrated word in our culture. Meekness means weakness in our culture. No, that is not meekness. Meekness is having the power, but not using it. So you're standing in front of a two-year-old, look, dude, I could take you out, and I'm not going to. That's meekness. You do not use your power to, when you don't need to. So, so meekness, well, we'll just go on. Um, the other one is valor, courage. Um, you need courage when you're on the battlefield. You need meekness when you're off the battlefield. And virtue is typically done from the middle. Have you ever heard that? Virtue is done from the mean or the middle. So honesty. Well, if you do it from the middle, you don't, you don't, you're not too honest. Because what are you then? You're just a jerk, right? Or, or you do it on the other end, and you're a liar. Or in today's terms, we'd call you a codependent who can't speak the truth you know, to whoever you love. So virtue is always done from the mean. Now, when we talk about, Lewis talks about virtues of meekness and valor, he says, look, you want full-on meekness off the battlefield. You want full-on valor on the battlefield. So um, one thing is you have to figure out you know, what the battlefield is, and you've got to get really clear on it. We'll talk about that in a minute. 
These two are tied together by sacrifice. If you're going to be meek, you're going to be sacrificing your ego. Or you, if you're valorous at work and you're standing up for something, you may lose your job or you know, it could be a literal life. So those are the three things. Um, so you've got to define who your enemy is. And the context is critical. It's a virtue when you're on the battlefield and valor. And it's, it's a vice off the battlefield. And meekness is a virtue off the battlefield and a vice when you're on it. You do not want somebody to say, oh, yeah, I can shoot you, but I'm not going to. And you want them dead. It's not a good thing. So does it address our two tasks and two um, distortions? I think it does. Meekness counters brutality. And it tames or makes, it has to, you have to have self-control. If you're going to take out a two-year-old, you don't have any self-control. So you get control of your aggression and your sexuality. We'll have an example here in a second. Same thing with valor. Valor is the opposite of passivity. And it, it also, you may need to help a kid who's very passive stand up and be more courageous to get their aggression in right orderedness. Um, and then um, valor and sexuality, that's a little more difficult, but if you have right ordered courage, you will not be using women. All right, how many of you know what RAF is? Royal Air Force. Um, Lewis uses this example. So these guys spend 87 hours typically average, in the cockpit before their plane burns up and the, the engines are in front so they fry. So they are the most respected group of men in the World War II in, in, in the military because they're putting their lives on the line. On the ground, the women loved him. They were very meek. They didn't use them. They didn't hit on them. Now, that is not your typical stereotype of military men and women, right? You know, oh yeah, they go out and they use them, whatever. So meekness and valor, and you have to make a sacrifice to do that. So that's the RAF. So here's how I put it visually. Fatherhood and chivalry. So we've got sacrifice, meekness, and valor. So pick up your prayers. This is uh, paragraph four, One, um, the whole thing. So, Holy Spirit, help me cultivate the virtue of chivalry in myself and in others through a life of sacrifice, the extreme meekness off the battlefield and extreme valor on the battlefield. With my meekness, which is having the power to fight but not using it, help me create safety for women, children, and the vulnerable. Jesus, teach me to rid myself of the extremes. Whoops. Pocket dial. The music came up. Um, so, 
That's chivalry. Now we're going to layer in priest, prophet, and king. Now why do we use priest, prophet, and king? Well, what happens in our baptism? We get anointed. Foreheads, priest, prophet, and king. This is the way men need to live out their Catholic life. Women too. Um, all this stuff you can translate over to women. Except well, chivalry, probably not. But, but this, this part, certainly. So this is, this is a change in our being. We become sons here in our baptism. We become divinized. We become God-like or gods, as the catechism would say. We become gods. So we're baptized. So what's the priest? Well, the priest sanctifies. He makes things holy. He links the human and the divine. Jesus comes. He's God and he's man. And in his in his being, I don't know if I'm saying that quite right, but in him is the union of those two things perfectly. Now, so that's Jesus, right? Well, anytime, since God is love, anytime you love somebody, what do you think you're doing? You're linking them to God. So this isn't, you know, church on Sunday and the rest of life. No, this is every day. You love somebody, you work for their good, you have warm feelings, Boom, you are linking them to God. That's a priestly function. So then there's prophet. The prophet teaches. They speak the truth in love. Now, you've got to see the patterns of what the world's doing and what God's doing in the world. That's another piece of it. But you're, you're teaching. And then there's the king. And the king governs. He orders the gifts of his, of his subjects for the good of all. Now, sometimes men are not good at seeing those gifts. You may have to work on that. Some of you are good at it. You want to cultivate those gifts. And then sometimes you need to provide and protect. So the king is where the warrior comes in. Sometimes he has to go off to battle. Now, it's kind of theological, it's kind of out there, let's bring it home. Rough and tumble play. It's a liturgy. So this is the single greatest thing that you can do with your kids, with any spiritual child, is rough and tumble play. Moms, sorry, you've got to get out of the way. Clear the living room or whatever, you've got to let them go. People are going to get a little hurt, but that's fine, it's all part of the learning process. So, what's a liturgy? I say a liturgy is a ritual, and it's a routine that communicates love, and then it creates communion. Okay? It's, a, it's a ritual and routine that communicates love and creates communion. Does rough and tumble play do that? You better believe it. You ever run across a kid? Well, there are some kids out there that are passive and don't want to engage in that. And the problem there is dad's going, yes, let's rough and tumble play WWF now. You know, no, that's too much. So you've got to go smaller with that. But there's no kid that doesn't love to do that with their dad, right? So um, that's dads bringing God's love to their kids right there. Rough and tumble play. That's not hard. 
That's not three hours of prayer. So, it's, um, well, let me check one thing here. Let's see. Oh, yeah, so we've got a, um, so it's a priestly role. You share God's love. Are you teaching them something when you're doing rough and tumble play? A whole lot, actually. You're teaching them uh, how to do play versus aggression. There are rules. If there are rules involved, guess what you're teaching? Morality and ethics. Now, moms, how many of you thought your husbands were teaching them religion while they're in the living room or wherever, rough and tumble playing? Show hands. Yeah. No, that's, that's what I'm saying. You've got to get this into your life. We're a liturgical people. We're, we're sacramental. That means that everything in life is sacred. So rough and tumble play. So you go home and get out of the way. I'm teaching them religion. <laughs> so it's prophetic. Then it's, oops. I got a new computer and I missed my touch screen. Um, so it's also kingly. You're, you, you learn a lot about your kids by rough and tumble play, right? I mean, one kid will have strengths, you know, that maybe they're too passive, so you want to ramp them up, but you go in slow and kind of ramp them up, or one guy's too aggressive. You've got to help them tamper it down. So you order the gifts. Now, you may see some other gifts as well, but you're, as your kingly role, you are ordering those gifts for the good of others. If they can't get control of their aggression, um, you know, people won't like them. That's not good. So it's, it's important stuff. And you can live out your spiritual fatherhood as priest, prophet, and king in rough and tumble play. All right, here's how we're going to layer in the priest. The priest is tied with sacrifice. Now, each, each of these can use all of them, okay? But they're accents. So we're going to, the priest would accent the sacrifice. He offers a sacrifice of love. What do you think's on meekness? Prophet or king? Prophet's going to be meek. Everybody agree? It actually would be the king. The king comes to serve, right? You want a, a meek king. And you want, you, want a, you want a prophet who's got courage to speak the truth. So we got the king. Now, there are distortions of this. So we got, and this is what the feminists have a problem with, the distortions of masculinity. They, they run it... They, most of them have brutal fathers. Not all, but most. So that's a distortion of valor. Passivity is a distortion of meekness. So a father can be a controller, or he can be absent. A priest can be a betrayer. It's too much in the news. And you can be a victim. But we're talking about the priesthood of all believers here. And then the prophet can be a persecutor. Almost said prosecutor. Same thing, right? <laughs> 
and then he'd be a coward, and then the king can be a tyrant, or he can be an enabler. He, he allows too much to go on. All right, so spiritual fatherhood in a Catholic vision of masculinity is the foundation of men and the family. And it's done in chivalry, sacrifice, valor, and meekness as priest, prophet, and king. This is what holds up the family. If you live this out, if you got this into your bones and live this out, you would have a very well-rounded, loving family that would evangelize the culture because they are starving for love. All right. Get the prayer out again. This is the bottom paragraph. Because of my baptism... I am the priest who sanctifies my physical and spiritual families. The prophet who teaches the faith by speaking the truth in love. And the king who governs through service, warming the gifts of the, for the good of all. All right, let's pause here for just a second. I feel like I'm pushing an ocean through a funnel here. Um, thoughts or questions? Ladies and gentlemen, this is the audience participation portion of our program tonight. Yes, that one's, uh, that one, no, that one is not. But um, if you want, send me your, e write your emails down up here and I can send you the slides. Oh, I'll leave it there. Other questions, thoughts, comments? Yes. Yes, yes, I've, I've discovered Peterson. So, and I, and I kind of knew it, but he, he like just put it on a billboard for me. Good comment. Judy uh, is the one who is responsible for getting me here, and so thank you for that. And then I work with her with uh, Dr. Greg Popcheck, um, who has the More to Life radio program and 12 or 13 books. Um, so, so anyway, thanks. Any other thoughts or questions? Yes. Yes. So this is not just simply no. No. masculinity. Right. Teaching religion happens on both sides of the sexes when it comes to rough and tumble play. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. It's about relationship. Oh, I know there was one in there. You know, here's, you know, when I see this one, it, it teaches social skills. So some of your women are like, what? 
social skills? My husband teaches social skills? No, he doesn't know how to talk. So, but it does in that interaction. All right. So, the third part of, of my Catholic vision of masculinity is the integrated or wise man. And this is going to include the head, the heart, and the hands. Um, so, when we take first um, dib at this, oops. Did I say I don't like my new computer? Um, so, to know, love, and serve. Anybody know where that's from? Baltimore Catechism. Yes, to know, love, and serve. So it's your head, your heart, and your hands. Now, these are fuzzy. They're not, you know, they're not all like, oh, scientifically looked at or anything, but, but it's, it's in the realm enough. And then St. Augustine says that the soul is the intellect, will, and memory, which I think is really fascinating because your, your comment about memory, it's, it's, this is part of the soul for him. Now, the part that they've left out in, all, in philosophy is the emotions. So I'm going to put them in here along with anybody who heard of uh, Dietrich von Hildebrand. Yeah, so he has a whole book on the heart. Not an easy read, but some really stunning stuff. Um, so that's the head, heart, and hands, intellect, will, and memory. Now, like I said, people come at this from different ways. Augustine says this is the soul. You know what see, Teresa of Avila says it is? It's the heart. So there's a lot of, or a lot of slush. Um, just in the, because um, we don't have that much time, I'm going to skip this part. But this is the last paragraph. That's, that talks about the head, heart, and hands um, and, and experiencing it there. Um, so we did that. All right, so spiritual fathers must be fertile. Now, if you, if you, what? If you only have that Catholic, you know, I got to share my faith, which is good. I'm not knocking that, but, you know, not everybody does it. You still need to be fertile. Um, so I'm going to show you how to do that. Andrew's going to be my assistant. So when I, I go and I talk to, um, whoa, hit myself in the face. Um, I go and talk to kids in high school. And um, I walk into the class and I say, what is it? They say, well, it's a ball. And they tell me, well, what is it? You know, tell me more about it. Well, it's round and it's blue. And you, you know, I say, yeah, you can't really tell me much more than that until you know what it's going to do. And I say, look, this is going to be your teacher today. It is going to teach you about the deep mysteries of life, of relationships, of marriage, and the Trinity. I go big. So then I take the ball, and we're just going to throw it back and forth. So I throw it to you, throw it back, I throw it to you, throw it back. So what did you learn about the Trinity? Cooperation. What else? Somebody. There's a lot of mumbling out there. There's a reciprocity. Reciprocity. 
give and take. That's where they usually go. Give and take. It's going back and forth. It's extending and receiving, and extending and receiving. And so I draw an F up on the board with a circle around it and an S, and then I put this infinity sign in between it. The Father totally extends himself to the Son. The Son receives that and totally extends himself to the back, back to him. And that brings new life. We know from theology of the body, man and woman come together, there's a potential. Well, there's always new life. There's two forms. Anybody know what they are? Hmm? No. Spiritual, emotional, bonding, and what else? Possibly. That's right, procreative. I was going to say, come on, you guys. Some of you got kids. <laughs> so I call this the infinite liturgy. You can sit down for a while. But I'll, I'll need you back, though. Um, so this is the infinite liturgy. What's the liturgy? It's a ritual and a routine that communicates love and creates communion. Does it qualify? I think so. Then I draw a man and a woman up on the board. I talk, I'm talking about marriage, so I do a man and a woman. So anytime you say hello and they say hello back, that's extending and receiving. And that brings new life. Think about it. What happens when somebody doesn't say hello back? It hurts. There's a death. Okay? So, um, y'all have a handy hand model of the brain. So, when the ball goes back and forth, your brain calms down. That's what we're designed for. Communion of persons. And, and in the Trinity, you know, I don't know, Catholics should be the relationship experts, right? The ball going back and forth, because it comes right out of the Trinity. When, when you do this, when you say hello, and somebody says hello back, that's a reflection of the Trinity. So here's another boots-on-the-ground spirituality, like rough-and-tumble play, where you can do this all day long. You don't have to go to a monastic kind of spirituality in your family. Oh, pray for four hours at a time, you know, and feel bad about it. Dr. Greg on his show today said that he talked about this today, like contrasting monastic and family spirituality. Now, I don't know if he went into this stuff, but this is a way to live it out. So every interaction, every conversation can be fruitful. This is where you guys need to be fertile. You throw the ball back and forth. So to do that, though, well, let's talk about the hand model. So there's three parts of the brain. This is your brain. Sorry, I always go to that commercial. This is your brain on drugs. <laughs> the egg, right? So this is your brain. This is an old enough crowd to get it. <laughs> so this is your brain stem. This is, your, this is where you, you have fear. This is fight, flight, and freeze. It does lots of things. Some people call it the reptilian part of your brain. It's the lizard brain. Okay? When you're there, you're not fun. You see the other person as the enemy. And you want to take them out, fight, or you get out of there, flight, or you freeze. Don't want the headlights. So that's the brain stem. Then here on your thumb, everybody take your hand model out. So your thumb there, that is the limbic system. 
the limbic system does two things that I'm going to talk about. It does lots of things. But it's the bonding centers, and it has your emotions in it. So some people would call that the mammalian part of your brain, because mammals share this with us. That's what I was talking about with the elephants. They know when they're connected. They'll, they'll go, every time they go by the grave site of one of theirs that died, they will go and smell it. It's wild. So anyway, that's the mammalian part of the brain. Um, if, you're, if, you're, if you have a pet dog, you know, he's happy to see you when you come home, right? Wags his tail, real happy. Have a pet crocodile, could care less, right? You know, unless he's hungry, sees leg of lunch there, wants to come after you. But otherwise, you ain't gonna care. So then, then you have your prefrontal cortex. That's the outer part of the brain. And then up in front here in your fingernails and fingertips, that's where we call it the prefrontal cortex. And that has three things I'm gonna talk about. One is, it's your intellect. That's your ability to reason. That's your ability to see solutions. Okay? Number two is your ability to see consequences. What do Catholics call that? Conscience. And then the third thing is your ability to take someone else's perspective. What would you call that? Empathy. Okay? So that's up in the front part of your brain. Now, empathy is really interesting. If you don't have empathy, you don't do morality. It's the foundation of morality. So if you can't take the other person's perspective, you don't care what you do, right? So you need those things to be in what we call mindsets. Popcheck talks about adult self mindset and child self mindset. To be in your adult self mindset, your fingers need to be down and your intellect, your conscience, and your empathy are all online. That's when the ball goes back and forth nice. Now, um, so there are four responses to fear. You can face it, that's your adult self, have the feelings fully, but your intellect, your conscience, and your empathy are still online. That still may mean, you know, if you're in a gun battle, you still take the guy out. But you're not, you're not going over the edge, you know, shooting everybody. So then, that's the adult self. Then there's child selves. We give them these catchy little phrases, tantruming. That's the fight strategy. I also call this the inner lawyer. That's, you know, tantrum light is defensive. That's when your inner lawyer comes out and wants to do a PowerPoint presentation and get you five bullet points on why you're wrong. Right? Or why they're right. So that's tantruming. Then there's pouting withdrawing. Um, you can do that mentally, or you can do it physically. Over involved at church, work, whatever. You're withdrawing from the family. Or you're just, you know, I wonder what the sports score is right now. You know, you're gone. And then there's the expert mode. And the expert has a wonderful solution for the other person. The problem is they do not want it, okay? The expert mode does not, that has, there's no judgment on the quality of the advice being given. It's all about the receptivity of it. And if they're not receiving it, you're in expert mode. So these are all powerless positions. I need my assistant, Andrew. So let's see. 
Um, how can I do this? Well, all right, so I'm going to throw the ball to you. You're going to throw it back. So which one is this? Pouting with drawing. Or I can take it, you know, play by myself. Take my toys and go home. Pouting with drawing. Okay. Um, so let's, um, let's have you throw the ball to me, hit it here, and then I want you to pick it up and do it three times. Oh, you missed. Oh. There you go. What's that? Expert mode. Great solutions coming in. Boom. Not going anywhere. Okay? That makes you mad if you're in expert mode. Go to powerless. Um, so give me the ball. Now, I'm going to fake you, okay? I'm not going to do this. But what if I took the ball and What's that? Fights. Tantruming. Big one. And it's on what? The extending or the receiving side? Extending. Now, um, I can't do this one because I don't have enough space to do it, but I'd have him throw the ball and then I would smack it to the ground in the class. It hit the ceiling. One time I hit the teacher. The kids loved it. Um, so what's that? That's tantruming, right? It's, it's, it's on the receiving end now. I'm not accepting it and I'm violently getting away. Don, thank you. Give a round of applause to Andrew. So that's fight, flight, and freeze. So that's, that's the opposite of the primordial liturgy. I didn't use that word, but that's the liturgy between people from the beginning. That's when, that's when the ball gets dropped. Okay? That's when the interaction goes sterile. Okay? So if you're a spiritual father, you need to learn how to throw the ball back and forth. Husband, too. We could talk about spiritual husbandhood, too. But you need to help the ball continue. So if you, if, you know, I mean, we all, you know, I've been married, what is it, 29 years now? Getting on the, that. And, I mean, you know, marriage isn't perfect. I mean, ours is not. And so we drop the ball sometimes. We've gotten a lot better over the years keeping the ball going, though. Um, but if you don't know, I mean, what? If you don't know what your spouse's moves are by now, even if you're in a year into it, you know, you got to clue in a little. And then, you know, this is like a basketball team that beats you on the same play, the same way, the same time, every time. Okay? Get a new play! Yes! <laughs> there you go. Yes. So get a new play. Get the ball. Figure out how to catch the ball and send it back without volleyball smashing it in their face. Okay? So what we want to do, um, well, what, what's, what's the movement of love? Is it toward yourself or toward others? Others, always. So what's the movement of fear? It's always, you're going into self Self-preservation mode, fight, flight, or freeze. So St. Augustine says that sin curves you back in on yourself. So it's the same thing with fear. I think fear underlies all sin, all of it, from the garden onwards. Now, shame can get built in there, but it's fear. 
So it turns you back in on yourself. That's when the ball drops. No liturgy, no life. You do this long enough, your marriage is over. I won't ask, but I'm sure there's some divorced people in here. You know, it's over. If you can't throw the ball back and forth, you can't, you can't sustain it for years. So what does perfect love do? I'll give you the answer. Drives out fear, right? That's scripture. Perfect love drives out fear. So here's my little thing of it. It, it gets rid of it. That's getting the ball to go back and forth. So when you're mad, you know, yeah, you sound upset. Um, is there something we can work on together? Throw it back. Um, you know, I would like this conversation to continue, but I need you to take it down a notch. Um, you know, if it's getting mad, I get how angry you are. What I don't hear is what you would like to do about it. Throw the ball back to them. So there's three solutions there. The last one was their solution. Now, you can offer that one up, you know, in a really crappy way. Um, so the contrast is rally ball versus dodgeball. Okay? Rally ball is simply you throw the ball back and forth as long as you can. Keep it in the air. And the goal is to go long. What's dodgeball? Get the other person out. Or ping pong. You're trying to get the ball beyond them. Quit, paying, quit playing dodgeball and ping pong and play rally ball with your spouse, with anybody. Keep the ball going back and forth. All right. Uh, in your handouts, I'm going to put this. These are my two favorite catechism passages. If you need some help working on your heart, um, this one's on forgiveness. So this is purifying the memory. Sometimes you need help. If you're not feeling loved, you, got, you may have to forgive somebody. And you have to purify the memory. It's 28.43. And then this one is, has to do with the purification of your heart. This is in the Our Father section. Both of them are. So you have paternal and maternal images that come from your family history, cultural history, and they get in the way of your relationship with God. So you need to purify that. So for you to love and to get rid of fear, you have to sort that through. Some of you have done some of this. Some of you need to do it. So let's go to the prayer. And we are going to read paragraph two. Drive out fear and senselessness in my life by revealing this love to me, that I may encounter it, experience it, participate deeply in it, and make it my own, not just in my head, but in my heart, so that my hands will do only your will. Help me to receive this love as a little child. And also, okay. Um, so we talked about the mindsets. Then um, on the card and on the back is take the Abba challenge. If you want to take this you know, to another level. This, this is cheesecake, okay? You don't eat this thing every day at a time. So I set up 33 days of texts, and we don't do any advertising, so, you know, you'll come and go, and, you know, you, you won't know it. I won't know it. Um, but you sign up, and um, you can 
it gives you what paragraph to read for that day, and then it gives a little challenge, you know, like, hey, think about this. How are you doing on that? Um, so that's that. All right. Oh, gosh, I'm coming down to the end here. So fatherlessness is the problem at the core. It's destroying our families and society. It likes, our culture likes to divorce these things. The church says, no, stop divorcing them. We've got a better story than yours. It's, it's a good one. I'm suggesting that a Catholic vision of masculinity is a way to stop this. If we can get men living out actual Catholic masculinity and spiritual fatherhood, remember this guy, three-foot ride, amazing, I can't imagine that. We are completely and totally insanely loved. That's the prodigal son story. That guy should have had a bronze boot placed you know where, right? I mean, come on. So we're loved and then we're challenged. Heroism starts early, really early, and we need these ordinary heroes to step up and to live out their spiritual fatherhood in chivalry as priest, prophet, and king. We've got to address those two tasks. What is it? Aggression? No, sexuality? Aggression. And the, attend to the two distortions, brutality and passivity. And I hope I've given you a whole new way to think about being fertile with the ball going back and forth. That is spiritual fatherhood, spiritual husbandhood. You can take it down to brotherhood, even sonship. You know, throwing the ball back and forth. Get good at it. That's the infinite liturgy reflected in the primordial liturgy. That's the spirituality of the family. Got the rough and tumble play. Is liturgy refrain? And then here's the distortions. Remember that? Now we've got the head, the heart, and the hands. You need to integrate those. And suffering is a great way. This is really wisdom. When you get your head, your heart, and your hands online, some guys are head-oriented, and some families are that way. You know, how many of you know engineers that are pretty head? And I'm not asking how many of you are that, but you know. <laughs> then, there are, then there, are, there are others that are very heart-oriented. But we need both. And, and you're not going to become you know, Mr. Touchy-Feely if you're an engineer, and you're probably not going to become Plato or Aristotle if you're a heart guy. But you need some of both so that you can have wisdom so you can live it out. <coughs> then, final wrap-up. So this is fatherlessness is the problem, and spiritual fatherhood is the solution. Okay? That's it. Questions, thoughts? Go ahead. I have Judy. a question. I've been wondering because I'm very practically minded. Um, and I think one of the things that can often happen for us is, you know, we come to a presentation like this and it's like, wow, this is great. But I'm thinking, you know, the rock and roll play is a great example of practicality. Even I was thinking as you were talking about thinking, walking past the 
wondering if you have thoughts about other practical ways in which this can be lived out. I have a whole page full. Awesome. <laughs> it's in the handout. Um, so do the ABBA challenge. Um, you need, you, some of you may need to work on your identity and being loved, and that's going through the catechism and purifying those, your heart and your memories. Um, you may do active contemplation, which is putting yourself in the story. Put yourself in the prodigal son story. I've got an article out on Catholic Exchange on the Good Samaritan. He's not just a good neighbor. And, and it flipped it over for me. I, I, I was, I'm a recovering work-for-love person. Got to do, do, do so I can be lovable. And that's not our faith. Our faith is we are loved first. One, one writer says, we start at the top of the mountain. Most religions have you start up the bottom and work your way up and struggle. We, baptism, poof, we're up at the top. That's St. Therese's elevator. So go up to the top, get love there. Good Samaritan is, he's, the Good Samaritan is Jesus and the guy on the half-dead guy on the road is us in original sin. When I hear the Good Samaritan story, where do I go? Oh, I gotta be the Good Samaritan. No, I gotta be the half-dead guy who doesn't ask for help? The wound, the woundedness draws in the Samaritan. All you have to be is wounded, and God will respond to you. Go there. So anyway, put yourself in the story. Then the challenge side. Get the ball going back and forth better. So, some of you are going to need help. Some of you can do this on your own. Talk about it. You know, look, here's the play my wife runs. What would you do? You know, I don't want to. You know, I don't want to do dodgeball. What can I do? Um, then I've got questions here to identify your distortions. Um, roughhouse with the kids and then do the spiritual and um, corporal works of mercy. Okay, so roadmap right here. Come get them. Uh, any other thoughts or questions? I know we're 